Paul writes at the very end of chapter 9, beginning at verse 26, So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. He ends chapter 9 speaking about his activity in the ministry not being aimless. He's not boxing at air but rather he is focused in his activity, yet still with the concern that he might be disqualified in the end. And then he moves on into chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And they were struck down in the wilderness. What? This comes right out of left field. What is he talking about here? Yeah, he's jumped back to the Exodus. He's apparently about to illustrate a point. Sure. Remember, up until now, he's one of the themes he's been addressing has been the Corinthians' super spiritual um, superiority complex. They believe themselves to be rich in the Spirit. They believe themselves to have great spiritual gifts, so much so, so that they can tolerate uh, a leader of their church having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And look how wonderful tolerant they are and how spiritual they are in all of their understandings. And Paul has been laying that claim of theirs to waste in the last nine chapters, or seven chapters, actually. He's not done. He's still talking about the issue of being overconfident in one's spiritual spirituality. And here he is pulling straight out of the Exodus the people, the Israelites, look at what they had, and yet they fumbled terribly. Look what he starts with. He says, our ancestors, of course he's speaking about Jews, Jewish Christians. He's speaking to Jews who are now Christians for the most part at this point in the letter. Our ancestors were all under the cloud. <coughs> were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Huh? What is, let's take it at two pieces, these two pieces, well, three pieces, two pieces first. Cloud and sea. What is the cloud? Was God traveling with them? The cloud that followed them or led them by day, and the pillar of fire by night. Remember that imagery from Exodus? From the, the Ten Commandments. From the Ten Commandment movie? Yeah. I mean, come on, we can go with that one. They did a great job with that pillar of fire. 
the cloud which was a manifestation of the real presence of God in their very midst, that cloud and the fire which stood between them and the approaching Egyptians and Yul Brynner's all angry because he can't get at at Charleston Heston, you know, all those wonderful scenes from the movie. Well, actually, it's not a bad description, visual layout of what happened in that God stood between the pursuing Egyptians and the Israelites. God led the Israelites in the wilderness. God led the Israelites right up to the Red Sea. So that pillar of fire, the cloud, and the pillar of fire, and here he just uses the images of the cloud, was God really present with them? Uh, a manifestation of God's real presence. What about the sea here? All passed through the sea. The Red Sea. The Red Sea. And what happened at the Red Sea? God parted it to give them safe passage. Yes, indeed. God parted the Red Sea and they passed through on dry ground, through the waters, split parted waters to the other side. This event is a seminal event in the Israelites' history. It is the apex around which all of Israelite understanding of God rotates. And if you look at their experience of God, you see that they believe that God is there protecting, leading, guiding, making a way. And that understanding comes straight down to us also in Christ Jesus and in our Christian experience today. He fights on the side of Israel is some of the imagery that we have in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, where the Psalms recount several times. And in one particular time, it recounts the story of the Exodus and Yahweh fighting for Israel when they get through the Red Sea and then the Egyptians come in the waters pour back in and drown the Egyptians. This was the critical moment where the people in many respects had been so divided into various tribes and groups for a moment going through the sea they were one. They were one in purpose they were one in effort to get through and to get out. And God was with them. And hence, in a sense, it was like a baptism. And that's what Paul is aligning it with here, is the whole conception of baptism. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, that's an interesting image. Mm -hmm. Baptized into Moses... Well, who are Christians baptized into? Christ. Christ Jesus. That's an obvious question, an obvious answer. Paul is saying, just as Christians today are baptized into Christ and have their identity in Christ Jesus, even though we come from many different places and are many different kinds of peoples, nevertheless we are all baptized into Christ and we are one in Christ Jesus, so also the Israelites, even though they were many different tribes, of the Israelites, of the sons of Jacob, nevertheless were baptized, in a sense, into God, the fire, the sea, and Moses. They became the children, in some sense, the children of Moses. 
They're united in purpose. Exactly. United in purpose. United in identity. Moses' people. At least for a moment. <laughs> it got... It fell to pieces, friends. Yeah. But for a moment, they had this experience. They... And, you know, you sometimes you just want to... When you read Exodus and you read how they go from seeing wonderful miracles to behaving like absolute spoiled children and brats, and you go, how can you disbelieve and do the things and say the things that you're doing, you stupid Israelites, when you just saw what God did at the Red Sea? How can you possibly do that? And yet we do the same thing. <laughs> I'm going to start preaching here in a minute if I'm not careful. And he says, and he doesn't finish it with just the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. What was the spiritual food? Manna. The manna, yes indeed. The manna that God gave them. What was the spiritual drink? Water from the rock. Didn't know the rock followed them around. Water from the rock. Moses struck the rock with the his staff. And yes. There's several instances where this is described. Now, I'm reading from the New Jerome Biblical Commentary on this portion of 1 Corinthians. And it says here, spiritual food slash drink. The reference evokes their miraculous origin and the allusion is evidently to the Eucharist. The rock which followed them. There is no hint of movement of the rock in the Old Testament, but a legend developed on the basis of a Jewish interpretation of Numbers 21.17 uh, believes that the rock did in fact, was in fact carried by them. The interpretation is that, the, that what happened was the rock that Moses struck, the first time God told him to strike the rock, and it provided water for the people to drink. Because they were thirsty, they were whining, they said they were going to die. Mm -hmm. And so God provided them water to drink in the wilderness. Water that was of a miraculous origin. We won't go into the fields or vineyards, we won't drink any well water, we will travel the King's Highway until we get traveled through your territory. So they're... Sounds like they're not... I mean, they're carrying no water. No, they're not, they're not carrying water. They're carrying a water they're production water system. Source. Have they carrying their water source with them? Wells there you go. go That's probably what's... The, it's 17 and following, by the way. It's probably what sparked the interpretation that the Jews had because it occurs twice, at Massa and at Meribah. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? 
No, come on. I mean, it's the know. Edward G. Robinson. Where is your Moses now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? When you started saying, said, "Oh well," and then they had problems. That's the first face that I remembered was his going. Mm-hmm. Oh man, the overseer. Dason, <laughs> the overseer. So Moses cried out to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You know, that is so insane. That's one of those examples, one of those places where you go, Israelites, he got you through the Red Sea. Don't you think the Lord's with you? (laughs) Well, they were thirsty, and they were questioning it. They're whining and whining and complaining about it. And so God provided water from a rock when he strikes it. Okay, turn to Numbers chapter 20, beginning at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had died when our kindred died before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Uh, They're whining again. Mm -hmm. And this time they're being even more long-winded about it and wasting all of that Well, they need to drink, so. There is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. Now that was the order. But that does make it seem as though the rock is something specific that they carried with them. This is much later than the other event. And yet there is no question what rock, it's just the rock. So Moses, now that was his, those were his orders. Mm Mm-hmm. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. 
These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of the Lord quarreled with the Lord, and by which he showed them his holiness. Now, some people say this is the same event told two different ways. But in actuality, it seems like two different events. Well, yeah, it is two different of events. Of course it is. Because in the first one, the Lord told him to strike I know. Well, there are some people who say it's the same event and we just don't hear the details the right way. I disagree. It's two different events. And in the first event, he says, strike the rock. He strikes the rock. Water comes out. He says, second time, command the rock. And water will come out. He strikes it twice. And water comes out. Almost like it became... the first time and it didn't work, so he hit it again. That <laughs> well, doesn't say. I know. <laughs> but that's an interesting, you know, bang, bang. <laughs> no, he doesn't Wake hit it. Wake up, Rock. Wake up, Rock. You worked before. <laughs> You're supposed to speak to it. He's supposed to command it. He doesn't. Instead, he slaps it twice with his staff. He does essentially what he did before. But the issue is the rock is not identified... Now, there is a theological argument made for why God punishes him so sternly, not letting him lead the people into the promised land because he has done this. Uh, there's theological arguments made for why God punishes him so sternly because the rock is a type of Christ, as we see in what Paul has to say. Christ died only once, suffered and died only once, not twice. And if the rock is a type of Christ, then here he's being, the, the type is being marred by him striking it a second time instead of the first, just the first time. So we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment, but in uh, maybe a little more detail here. But it's two events, same rock, two different places essentially. So they would have to the So the rock needed to go with them. And Jewish interpretation, Jewish legend and interpretation, which stems from that quotation from here that I, that I listed from uh, Numbers 21, 17 and following. There is some indication that they went through the, these fields and in this territory without drinking from wells. Why? They had a portable water supply. They offered to. Yeah. Well, he said they said they had a portable. It, they would they could do it because they had a portable water supply. The interpretation is that's the rock. And then if you take a look at Paul's usage of it here, you see he's operating with the same understanding. Take a look at what he says here in first. Well, going back to First Corinthians now, <coughs> verse four. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Yeah. And the rock was Christ. So it's believed that they took this rock that generated the water and carried it with them. Well, it followed them. Well, yes, but we're, this is poetic here a bit. He's he's being, he is he is. This is a typology. A typology is a method of biblical interpretation, where you take an Old Testament item and you see it as a type of something from the New Testament. Obviously, Christ. The rock is a type of Christ. It provided water in the wilderness. It gave life and 
the wilderness. Gave life in the wilderness. Christ gives us life in the wilderness of our sin. And if you remember from Exodus, it, occur, it occurs in the wilderness of, of sin, sin. Yeah. which is a wonderful uh, alliteration and, and, and interpretive tool that is often used. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. So, they had God's real presence with them in the cloud. God saw them through adversity in the sea, so much so that it was a baptism into Moses, and a baptism into the cloud, and a baptism into the sea. God provided them with spiritual food. God provided them with spiritual drink. And yet they still fumbled the ball. They still messed up terribly. God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. MacArthur says, this is an understatement. MacArthur's right. It is an understatement. Simple fact is, Paul is making all of the events of the Exodus, and this is appropriate. He does it here. He does it elsewhere, too. All the events of the Exodus are a typology of the Christian church today. And just as the people in the Exodus became overconfident in their own spiritual position, so also the church becomes overconfident in its own spiritual tradition. Just because you have the real presence of Jesus, just because you have spiritual food and drink in the Holy Communion, do not think that you are above being punished, messing up, fumbling the understanding the understanding of spiritual things. He's starting out chapter 10 really hard and saying, just like those Israelites so long ago, so also the church today. They had spiritual food and drink. You have spiritual food and drink. They had this rock. And, you know, this rock appears other places too. It's sometimes called the stone of blessing. They'll set up a rock, out of, or they'll make a reference in the Old Testament of a rock or the stone. And it comes out of nowhere throughout the Old Testament. And they just for some reason it's there. They used it to help plot out the positions of the, the tribes in their tribal lands and individuals' own properties. They'd use this rock as the starting point for it. And it seems like this rock gets moved around continually. It's called the stone of blessing in some places. Uh, Jacob's pillar in other places. It has various different names and it's believed to be indeed that rock that was struck and should have been spoken to but was struck a second time in the rock that is referenced here in 1 Corinthians. Now, whether or not that's true is another matter. I happen to believe it is, but that's beside the point. It's a type of Christ for Paul. The whole event is a type of Christ and a type of the Christian church. And he's making a warning. They had God just as truly as you have God. And yet they fumbled. You can fumble too. That's a warning. Now these things occurred as examples for us. Here we go. Now he's going to interpret it. So that we might not desire evil as they did. Well, that's interesting. Crave evil is a different translation. Lusteth after evil. Desire, crave, lust for evil. Lust for evil? Did the Israelites lust for evil? 
How? The cow? Oh, we, we were just throwing in our gold earrings and bracelets and out jumped this cow, this calf. Wow, look at that. <laughs> you were up on the mountain for a long time. <laughs> Where's your Moses now? Do not become idolaters as some of, as some of them did. As it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to party. <laughs> they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, and the word there is pornea. Remember? It's more than just fornication. It certainly is fornication in the traditional sense, but it's more than that. Pornea, sexual immorality. We must not, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. That was the understatement. <laughs> when the, he said that, uh, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Yeah, they were. 23,000 fell. In a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example. I mean, it's not just that God wanted to smush them, wanted to smite them, wanted to zap them. No. These things happened to them to serve as an example. The, the plagues in Egypt were more than just God having fun and, and more than just the, the Egyptians refusing to bend. In fact, the Pharaoh wanted to bend and God hardened his heart. These things happen to show forth God's glory and majesty and power as an example for the Israelites, for the world, and for us today. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Somebody's phone is ringing. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents and do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's what I ought to have. I ought to have a sign up. It says all complainers will be destroyed by the destroyer. <laughs> These things happen to them to serve as an example. Now when he's talking about the destroyer, is he talking about Satan or is he talking about the angel of death? He's not talking about Satan. What do you think he's talking about? What is the reference? The plague. The angel of death. Mm-hmm. Let's see. When he destroyed the firstborn of Israel of Egypt. He, well, the firstborn, period. Period. Yeah, that's the general understanding that is I understand it for sure. That's the destroyer, the angel of death, as it's normally referenced. I think it's interesting. The green mist. 
the hand, that, that, that foggy hand yeah. that comes that scared the daylights out of me when I was a kid, mm-hmm. watching it on TV, this hand was coming down, and you could see it kind of running through the streets. You know. mm-hmm. They did a much better job of it in the, um, the, the Prince of Egypt, the, the, the animated version. I really like the, how they depict this plague. It really is done well. And um, um, it's, it's described here as these things happened to them to serve as an example. And they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Hmm upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Jesus is coming next Tuesday. In part, yes. This immediate expectation, we are at the end. We're living in the last days. We are living in the last days, be it... And Paul's statement of that, he believes it clearly there. If it's the last days for Paul's, it's clearly the last days for us too. But it does reflect that immediate expectation that they are right there at the end. That is an understanding that Paul had. And I use that Jesus is coming next Tuesday metaphor to describe that whole idea. It's, these events happen to instruct us. They were an example for us. So, verse 12, So, if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. No testing has overtaken you. That you are not, excuse me, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out, so that you may be able to endure it. And we hear that promise all the time, out of context. Within context, it is a promise. It's also part of a warning. If you think you're standing, if you think you are sufficient, if you think you've made it and have arrived, watch out. You're you're likely to fall. The good news is, even when we are tested and when we come up against the testings, no testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. You may think this is bad and unusual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Exactly. Well, sorry, nothing is new. Any trial or tribulation you are facing in your Christian life is a trial or tribulation that others have faced. If you said that 2,000 years ago, it's really true today. No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. Now that is really the core of the promise. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out, the way of escape, so that you may be able to endure it. Indeed. Thank God for the open door. Thank God that God provides us 
Even in the midst of testing, His grace is there to sustain us and to see us through the difficulties, the testings that we receive. Just as not all of the Israelites were wiped out, God provided for them and saw them through and saw their descendants into the promised land. God provided, God was gracious, even through and even despite their sin, their arguments, their complaining, their whining, their moaning and groaning, their idolatry. God, while God executed swift justice and while God killed a whole lot of people for what they did, nevertheless, God provided those events as an example to us. And just as they fell, we can fall, but when we do realize that God is there and we will not be tested beyond what we are able. Any questions? Okay. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people. I hope they're sensible. (laughs) That's kind of what he's saying. I'm trying to talk to you as if you've got some common sense, friends. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? I wonder where you got that from. (laughs) What what do you mean? In the... In in the Great Thanksgiving? Yeah. It's part of the liturgy. (laughs) But that's where they get it from. It comes straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, and of course the question is rhetorical, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body? Of Christ, And, of course, the answer, because of the conditional question it is, is yes, it is. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Again, that comes straight, I mean, that's where we get it in the liturgy. It comes straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Ooh. (laughs) Now remember, we talked about the eating of food that had been sacrificed in pagan temples before, a couple of chapters ago. And one of the issues that was brought up was the question, is this sacrificial process? What, is it sinful to eat this meat that had been sacrificed? And fundamentally, the answer was no. It, what, it isn't in and of itself 
a sin if you understand the reality that those are not gods and this whole process isn't really a spiritual process that they're doing and you want to eat that meat, you can. But if a weaker brother or sister sees you eat that meat and believes that you're partaking of that demon, of that idol, by eating of the meat that was sacrificed to it, then don't do it because you will be serving as a stumbling block to that weaker brother or sister. Hence the stumbling block principle would say even though in and of itself the meat is still just regular meat, if someone sees you eat it and they are harmed by you eating it, don't eat it. Alright? Mm -hmm. Now he comes back to the question of idolatry. Now remember the context. He's just finished talking about the Israelites had all of this manifestation of God's presence and they stumbled and fell. You have a manifestation of God's presence, yet you stumble and fall. And he makes a clear Eucharistic um, connection back at the beginning of chapter 10 when he talks about spiritual food and spiritual drink. They had it, you have it. And yet you still stumble and fall. Now remember, he's talking to the church. And he says, isn't the... The food, the, isn't the bread that we break, isn't it a sharing in the body of Christ? The cup over which we give thanks, isn't it a sharing in the blood of Christ? Oh, yes, it is. Well, if we're partaking of Christ at the Lord's table, how can we also partake of demons, of idols, of other gods at their tables? He's making a strong argument here against eating that meat. Notice what he says. What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. He believed, as many Jews did in his day, that these other gods that pagans worshipped, Zeus, Athena, Aphrodite, these other pagan deities aren't gods, they're idols, but they're worse than that. They're not just stone figures, they are that. But in their worship, these pagans are actually worshipping Satan and demons. And when they are involved in this paganistic worship and involved in eating the meat that was sacrificed to that idol, they are partaking, you are, when someone does that, they are partaking in demon worship and taking into themselves. Paul says it right here. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. His interpretation is a classic Jewish interpretation. These pagan gods are really demons. They're not gods of any kind, but they're more than just nothing. They are demonically inspired. And when you eat meat that was sacrificed to one of these pagan things, you're, you're engaging in demonic activity, and you're receiving into yourself that demonic identity. Just as when you, the, the contrapositive is when you eat of the table of the Lord, 
You receive God into you. Now, in Christian theology of sacramentology, which is my area of specialization, this passage right here, verses 14 through 22, is the core of real presence theology. Now, people have asked me, where do I get my understanding that Jesus is really present in Holy Communion? I can go lots of different places. I can go to John. I can go to the other, elsewhere in the Gospels. I can go to what Paul says a little later in Corinthians. But right here, his argument requires that Paul have understood that when you ate from the table of the Lord, you were receiving into yourself the real presence of Jesus. If he doesn't have that understanding, then how can he argue against take eating from the table of demons? Mm -hmm. He says, you're eating of the table of the Lord. You're receiving into yourself Jesus. You can't, therefore, eat of the table of demons, too. Now, there are lots of theological things that flow from this. Sacramentally, it says... God provide, and if you go back, this is in accord with what he says in the first 13 verses of chapter 10. God is providing us with his presence, his strength, his power, his guidance. And even when we stumble and fall, God is still there. We're not going to be tested beyond what we are able. Look, you already are eating from the table of God. You, you receive Jesus into yourself. We are one, just as the Israelites were one in their baptism into Moses. So also, we are one in Christ Jesus when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We receive him into us, and therefore we cannot be engaging in this kind of idolatry of any kind. You can't worship another god and worship Christ too. You really cannot be eating of this meat that is offered to idols. Because if you do, not just that a, a brother will stumble and fall, yes. But theologically speaking, what you are doing is mixing sources of spiritual food. And you're eating demonic spiritual food and Christian spiritual food. And you can't eat both. They're like antimatter and matter. They'll blow each other up spiritually speaking. Here Paul is not saying separate yourself from pagans so much as he is saying don't participate in their worship. Right. You, can't, you cannot serve two masters is another, mm -hmm. another place you could be drawing from here. But here he's drawing from the Eucharistic imagery. The table of the Lord. The Corinthian church was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Lots of Gentiles who formerly were worshippers in these temples and believed, at least at one point, if not currently, that those idols were real gods or goddesses. Because he, he makes that... Yeah, thing. he makes that argument earlier. You once believed that these were. Some of them still believe it. The weak ones still believe that these idols, that that really is a god or goddess. And if you eat of the food that has been sacrificed to that idol, they believe they are receiving and partaking of that idol. You can't do that and also partake of the table of the Lord. So here he makes goes a step further from his earlier argument and says, 
not only for the stumbling block principle, but because of your mixed allegiances and what that says, do not engage in any kind of activity in the temple of another god, especially with the symbol here of eating food sacrificed to idols. You receive into the community pagans because they are being converted. They drop their paganism and become Christians. But they bring with them attitudes, ways of thinking, ways of believing. And one of the things they bring with them is the idea that when you eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol, you're receiving part of that idol into you. And that conception is parallel to the idea in communion of eating of the table and receiving Christ into you. And that is reflected even in the Old Testament where the priests who participated in the worship of Yahweh and sacrificed the, the sacrificial animals partook of some of the meat for their own support and sustenance. Now, question? Uh, it's almost like he's contradicted himself almost times here. Almost. Because, I mean, even at one other point, he talks about food that's taken in is eliminated. Yeah, it's flushed out of your system. So, you know, that doesn't pollute you, but yet... That's what Jesus says, actually. Like he's saying that with the stumbling block principle, if you believe Mm -hmm. that you are taking in that demon, then you don't eat that. And that's what he's saying to weaker Christians. And he's saying about the stumbling block principle to stronger Christians, if they see you doing it and are enticed to doing it too, don't you do it either. Here he's substantiating why these weaker brethren actually are not, why they are doing this, why they believe this, and why you really should not be voliciously eating at the table. So he's actually not contradicting so much as he's building his argument a step at a time. He begins with the fundamental statement, yes, it's just meat, yes, those aren't gods, and yes, if you eat them, you're not and you don't know it, you're not really receiving into yourself the other demon, that, that other God. But if someone sees you eating it and they believe that it's, that's what it is, then don't you do it, and they shouldn't do it either, and this substantiates that argument. Now later on here, and we're going to hit on this next time, he's going to talk about, so you know, if you're eating, don't question where this meat came from. Don't ask the question, did you get this meat from the temple of Aphrodite? Don't ask those questions. But if you find out, then don't eat it so that someone else will not stumble. It still goes back to the stumbling block principle, but there's a theological ground behind it and behind the reason why so many people were bothered by it. And that's what he's drawing here. And here he's really saying, let's err on the side of those who believe that those things are real. You know, They are demons, that their worship is demonically inspired, and not eat of it. And he's going to go ahead, and next time we'll come back and hit it again, but he's going to talk more deeply about it and about how it's important not to harm the conscience of those weaker brothers and sisters who believe that this is all real. Those other things are not gods, but their worship is demonically inspired. And you cannot engage in worship of other gods. Certainly not that. So do not do that for sure. And... When you go into a temple and, you know, remember what I said, 
uh, it was true at that time if you were like a member of Bricklayers Union 105 and you had to make your annual dues to the union and one of the things you did was you made your your annual sacrifice to the to the patron deity of the union and if you were a Christian now that was problematic for you because it involved going into the temple and engaging in a worship service where you not only gave money to the temple and engaged in a, in a sacrifice uh, on the altar of the deity, but then you were blessed in your work by then eating the meat that had been sacrificed, receiving the deity into you, which would then assist you in your labor for the union and laying bricks or whatever. Well, if that's part of what you're supposed to do in your bricklayer's union, and you're now a Christian, you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Because you can't eat at the table of that demon that is your patron for your union and the table of the Lord. You can't do both. Copyright by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. Visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.